Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It's always great to be back with you. I am so privileged to be able to do this, and Steve is, I know, as well. We're so glad to be a part of this community. Um, It is just such a blessing to really participate in this conversation that's ongoing, this journey that's ongoing. Um, Just really appreciate you guys and just appreciate the community that we have at Beyond the Box. Today, we have a special guest Tony Bartlett, Dr. Anthony Bartlett, has joined us to talk about his book, Virtually Christian. Um, Tony and I have been exchanging emails and Facebook messages for about a year now, but I tell you, it was such a privilege to actually be able to sit down and talk with him on the phone and just really uh, pick his brain and mine his heart over this subject of virtual Christianity. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Such an awesome uh, there's just so many moments in this conversation that I think are going to be uh, light bulb switches for so many of us. Just such a great, great book and such a great, great man, Tony Bartlett. Let's get right to it. Well, welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great, as always, to be with you here on the podcast. And today I am joined by my new friend, Anthony Bartlett. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm uh, delighted to be here with you. Tony ha- Tony just does a number of things. Uh, Tony, you're a speaker, an author, uh, a seminary professor. You've got your hand in a lot of different pots. Um, also, you, you work with Theology and Peace. And as we've been talking, um, you've, you were telling me that you were trained and worked as a Roman Catholic priest for around 20 years. Talk a little bit about your journey and how you came to be where you're at today. Yeah, well, I've had a kind of checkered career um, in religion, um, in the church and in, in, in churches and religion generally. Um, I just can't leave it alone. Um, but I started off as, um, as a seminarian, uh, training to be a Roman Catholic priest in 1964. And those were uh, tumultuous years because those were the years in which the, um, the big uh, changes were taking place in the Roman Catholic Church uh, precipitated by the um, Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, and uh, no one really appreciated how far-reaching this was going to be. And the, all those years, uh, the 60s and early 70s, were years of um, great instability um, in seminaries, in churches, uh, in, in Roman Catholic churches um, across the world, I think, and. Um, they were they were exciting. They were very exciting years, and no one really knew where all this was going to um, end up and what it was going to produce ultimately about the nature of the church. And scores and scores of uh, priests and seminarians left. They actually <clears throat> felt that they 
they could serve God better um, in other roles. I mean, there was all that questioning going on. But anyhow, I stuck with it uh, for my own reasons. It was very deeply rooted in me. So in 1973, I was ordained. And then I spent a year in Rome, in Italy, um, because, uh, to tell the honest truth, by the, the time I got to ordination, uh, I felt completely at sea, and uh, um, I, I really didn't know what I was supposed to do or, or what the content being a priest was. So I thought, well, if I go to the very headquarters of this, play, of this thing, this organization, if I go to Rome, then I'll probably find out. Um, well, I did find out, but not entirely in the way <laughs> which, um, you know, the textbook uh, way, which I suppose you would <laughs> anticipate. Um, in fact, really, I mean, I was, I've been talking about it recently, but um, I, I discovered, uh, uh, essentially, uh, in that year, 73, 74, I discovered uh, Christ outside the church. I mean, it seems weird to say that, but basically, looking back on it, and there, there are lots of details to the story, but that, that um, Christ... Uh, became a reality to me that, that Jesus Christ uh, that, that hadn't been the case before, and it was it was pretty dramatic in my life. Uh, but it was entirely independent of the organization, mm. and it was very strange that it actually happened in Rome to me. I mean, it was part of the charismatic renewal, the uh, um, Pentecostal uh, renewal, as they called it at that time, um, the the prayer renewal, the Holy Spirit renewal. But it wasn't precisely that that did it. In fact, I, I kind of gave up going to that. It was very um, much something that happened to me. And so when I came back to England in 74, I was always a very independent <laughs> Christian minister. I, I never really felt part of... I mean, I had all those years beforehand, which were years of, um, of turmoil and questioning. And then I had this very independent uh, personal sense of... Um, an event of faith, an event of of of, 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 the, of the, the the revelation of Christ, who Christ is for me personally. So I was always very independent, and uh, really, in a way, you could say it was just a matter of time before I ended up leaving. But I didn't I didn't leave for another ten years, and the reason was is that I was I, I actually so enjoyed being a priest in a certain way. I enjoyed the ministry. I didn't enjoy the organization and the hierarchy, but I enjoyed the ministry, and it's all I ever wanted to do. So it was very difficult for me coming uh, out, of, out of and in that tradition to know what I could do if I wanted to um, to minister. Mm. So it took me a long time to come around to um, actually making the break and, and finding a life outside the priesthood. But, I, I mean, as I say to people, I think, and I, I say this in 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 sincerity, and I actually and I believe it to be the case, that God put me into the priesthood in order to take me out of it. Mm, mm. I completely identify with that, Tony, completely, even though my journey was totally different. What you're saying about God putting you there to take you out, it's almost like you have to see, um, and this is not, I don't mean this as a in a condescending sense, but it's almost in some ways you have to see what you're not called to and what's right. not God's will for you in order That's to really right. be able to see what it is. That's right, and because everybody around you and, and, and your, your family, your, your inherited church practice says, this is the way to do it, this is, this is what being called means, to figure out a new way, something alternative, basically on your own, mm. 
is painful and takes time. Mm-hmm. It, takes, it takes a long time. Uh, but thank God I did actually get there. Um, I, I left in, um, in 1984 after spending a further year in Italy. I, I, I spent a year in a small community of faith and uh, work and prayer uh, called the Little Brothers of Jesus. Uh, and it was a beautiful year for me. It was an incredibly important year. In fact, it was kind of like my novitiate. You know, in religious orders, you you you, you do a novitiate, which is a kind of a spiritual a year of spiritual preparation. And mm-hmm. the first one I did when I was seventeen, of course, I was completely at sea as to what it was what it was all what was meant to be and what I was supposed to be doing and, and what all these religious practices really meant. I just went through them, but then I had the second novitiate in in. 1983, 84, um, when I was, of course, much older, and uh, I really understood a lot more about what was going on, and it was a deeply meaningful spiritual year. So I actually got prepared. I had a spiritual year to prepare me to kind of, as they say, go out into the world to to, to be um, just a Christian in the world, mm. and it was that that was a wonderful experience. Mm. Now, now I know um, we've talked a lot about, about about the work of Rene Girard on this podcast. Um, Michael Harden's a, a big friend of the podcast. He's on here pretty frequently, and so we've talked a lot about the work of Rene Girard. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to encounter the work of Rene Girard and how that's been just a, a seminal motivation in your own writing? Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad to hear Michael is is. Uh, on this podcast frequently, I'm in good company if if he's been here before me. <laughs> so yes, uh, um, uh, in, in actual fact, uh, I heard about Rene Girard basically because of that year that I spent in Italy uh, the, from '83 to '84, because I made a couple of very good friends during that time. That uh, we were all, the people gathered in that community under the spiritual leadership of a guy called Carlo Coretta, who was a, who was a great man. He really helped. He was very significant in my life, but we, have, we were a bunch of misfits and ne'er-do-wells. We, we were all kind of out on the lamb somehow. They were about 20 <laughs> out of us. They were men, men and women, but, you know, like we were all on this search. Uh, so it was very exciting, but it's also tough because, uh, you know, people aren't all always, um, you know, on top form if you're looking uh, for something new and, you know, you can irritate each other. But we were a good community. Anyhow, I made this good friend. And he spent, uh, the, when I left there in 84, he spent the summer and the early fall in France in a community uh, of um, Lanza del Vasto, who was himself a, a disciple of Gandhi's. Huh. And he, in his community, had begun to read René Girard's uh, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And uh, my friend, his name is Franco, he came to England then in the winter, and I, at that point I'd started working with homeless people, um, and I did that for five years in London, and I was um, I was actually heading up this project for homeless people in the East End of London. He gave me this book, and he said, you really need to read this book, and I was so busy looking after this uh, pretty um, uh, run-down project and, and, and a badly organized, badly administered project and trying to get it on its feet, and it was, it was a tough time, so I didn't really look at that book. He gave it to me into my hand, and I didn't look at it until I finally left the project in 1989, having, a, by that point, it was, it was it become very successful, but the, the, myself and my wife, when I got married during that time, 
um, had decided it's time for us to move on, and, and we then had a somewhat quieter life, uh, actually an easier life, and I began to read the book. Uh, so it was given to me about five years earlier, and I started to read it five years later, and I said, wow, this is incredible. It, it had this effect on me that um, something's being said here which is so new and so different that I don't think even the author properly understands mm. how... Because I don't properly understand it. I mean, I know it's it's very new and it's very powerful, but it's it's like as if uh, Karl Marx was writing Death Capital, but it was a Christian uh, writing about nonviolence with that kind of penetrating uh, critique. But, but 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 as I say again, without the violence. So you know, like uh, in in those critiques, like Marx, Nietzsche, someone like that, you have a lot of violent thought and violent expression, and and that's not in. Uh, things hidden. In, in fact, it's the reverse. So it's a very, very strange experience. So this is a very radical viewpoint that could turn the world upside down, but it's not violent. And it, so that was so incredibly new for me um, that um, it kind of blew me away. And I, and I kept studying it and, and reading his stuff until finally um, one thing led to another. I actually wrote to René Girard and said, I want to study your, your, your uh, thoughts further, but in a theological context, because Bernie Girard is basically a scientific writer. I mean, he sees himself as a scientific writer, and he's assembled um, uh, evidence from a variety of sources for what he calls a scientific, or at that time certainly called a scientific hypothesis. Um, and he sees it like the, if, you, if you've assembled enough, input, uh, enough um, evidence uh, for a hypothesis, and it fits the material better than anything else, you really should accept that hypothesis. That's the scientific method. Mm. So he believes that he found uh, a kind of solution to the problem of, of the origins of, of religion um, and sacrifice in particular, and that's what lays it out. But uh, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the Gospels in there, but it's not specifically theological. And he always says, you know, I, I don't do theology. It's kind of weird because there's so much in there that really impacts theology. Mm. But he, he himself uh, kind of backs off the uh, four squares doing theology himself. So anyway, I wrote to him, and he replied to me eventually. I wrote to him by his publisher, and he replied to me. And his letter, his writing on his letter, I still got the letter, was at 45 degrees to the page. So it starts off on the bottom left-hand corner and moves it over to the top right-hand corner. <laughs> So I thought, this guy really must be a genius. Anybody who writes at 45 degrees to the page, not... Not a, that tells you he's an outside-of-the-box stinker, huh? <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this guy, you know, he, it, you know, they say writing reveals the kind of person you are, and definitely he's, uh, you know, he's, 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 he's upsetting the, the four-square stable world. He's, he's pushing it at an angle. He's, he's tipping it over at an angle. So anyway, he said, go to Syracuse or Innsbruck in Austria, Syracuse in, uh, in the United States, of course, and uh, to my um, uh, uh, my uh, disappointment afterwards, I, I thought, well, actually, there's going to be a lot of snow in Innsbruck, so I'll go to uh, Syracuse. Of course, Syracuse <laughs> is the snow capital of the USA. <laughs> it gets the golden snowball every year, you know. And boy, there was so much snow here. I thought, how, why did anybody put a town, a city down in this place? But anyhow, I did come here and I studied. Um, I studied with a guy called Jim Williams, 
who wrote um, the Bible, Violence and the Sacred, and was a scripture scholar, a great friend of mine, a great mentor. I learned so much with him. But I, you know, I studied with other uh, professors as well, and I learned um, basically postmodernism, uh, continental philosophy and postmodernism. It was an incredibly rich uh, um, intellectual time for me from eighty, uh, sorry, from ninety-three uh, through to. Uh, 99, and I did my dissertation on on atonement uh, because that's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to write about the atonement, and uh, and it, it got accepted, and I I I gained a PhD, and it became published in in, in as a book with some alterations as uh, it's called Cross Purposes. So oh, I didn't that realize was that was your dissertation. I didn't realize that's what that was. Huh? Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. So. That was that was my that's how I started this other career and it's it's been wonderful really I mean like we became my, myself and my family and we they, they came over with me we became U S citizens a couple of years ago we're you know we're part of this this great nation as they say well welcome <laughs> we're so glad you're part <laughs> thank uh, you very much Raymond yeah the the book Cross Purposes is actually sitting on my shelf yelling at me to be read among the among the stack wow. of of uh, books that I have right now. So that's one I'm going to work to today. We're going to talk about virtually Christian, which is uh, your newest book. And I love the subtitle, Tony, how Christ changes human meaning and makes creation new. And I tell you that really summarizes this book. We're just going to break this down section by section for our listening audience and just kind of go through some of the, uh, to me, some of the really radical in a very, very good way radical things that you're saying in this book that really, um, I believe have the power to gosh, really remake how we see humanity itself. Um, right. You start out the book talking about, uh, the no name (laughs) instead of calling him God, we call him no name. Can you talk a little bit about no name and why, why you feel like we have to start over in naming God? Right. Well, uh, the name God, G-O-D, um, is present in every language, uh, and of course, in translated form. There's Deus, um, um, Theos, whatever language. There's always a name for God. So it's, in some ways, the most familiar word that we have in all our spoken languages. But um, reading Gerard, you, you, I discovered that, you know, the... the that the thought of God and and the um, the realization of the of the religious or the sacred as he calls it is an, an event of violence of um, profound uh, foundational violence the killing of the uh, of the victim that is at the core of uh, human order is his viewpoint and so I, I thought well the first thing to do is to try to um, render the word God strange, unknown, um, that we really do not know um, who God is. And, and all our inherited um, uh, automatic responses to what we say, everybody, everybody has an opinion on, on God, or if, they're, if they don't believe in God, they still under, think they understand the Word, etc. Um, but as Jesus said, um, and it's this, that passage has always struck me, uh, he says... Um, no one knows the Father except the Son. Hmm. And no one knows the Son except the Father and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. That Jesus actually claims, in the most 
extraordinary, um, audacious claim that uh, no one knows God except him. <laughs> and that's a, I mean, that's a very weird thing for someone who's a Jew, after a thousand years of Judaism, uh, to say to his, uh, his peers, uh, his fellow Jews, you, you don't know God. Yeah. You don't know anything about God, and you don't know the Father. So I think that, but that's, not, that's the same for all of us, that because God is so profoundly nonviolent, uh, and and uh, consisting of love and, and of of um, a, a radicalism of love that's hardly um, comprehensible uh, by us. Um, that the first thing to do is to say we kind of really don't know uh, what wh- what this is. So I, I put no name in there instead of 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 God. So this is a, this is um this is a reality. This is a truth that we we have to learn. And we have to learn it over again, as if from the beginning. And we learn it from the story of Jesus uh, and the story of Jesus within the whole biblical context. So it becomes very exciting when you understand that um, that, that there is something really new being revealed to human beings, and it's and it's totally redemptive, transformative. It, it makes us, it, it changes our our language, it changes our understanding as human beings, and, and thereby makes us into uh, a new kind of human being, which is, of course, what the new anthropos, the new hum- humanity that Jesus came to bring. So it was just basically, it was, it was um, a, uh, a kind of method or, uh, or a rhetorical approach to try to uh, uh, de-familiarize de- uh, us with uh, what we think we know about God. Mm. Mm. You know, and it's interesting, in, in this section, in talking about no name. Um, you talk about God's otherness as specifically being linked to nonviolence. One of the things right. we've talked a tremendous amount about nonviolence on this podcast over the last few years, because I personally have become convinced that um, nonviolence is not, it, it's not an accessory or an attribute to who God is, but um, right there with love that it's essentially right. his nature. Um, right. and yet I, we have had some pushback from some people that, that maybe we're taking it too far because, uh, for instance, maybe people could do the same thing with morality, for instance, and holiness and talk about how, you know, um, immorality was a sin, but it, it, it was, it was something that was not necessarily against God's nature. So that maybe, maybe nonviolence is the same way. Violence is a sin, but it's you know it's not necessarily going against you know the essence of who God is, and yet I've right. come to I've come to look at it as that violence and that that nonviolence and love are these integral parts beyond anything else that I can name of who God is, and in you right. saying that it's it's specifically linked to His otherness. Um, whereas so many times we've heard that God's otherness has to do with his transcendence and untouchability and all of these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you see God's, God's otherness as specifically linked to nonviolence? Right. Well, in the Western tradition, just as you said, um, that, um, God's otherness, um, and, you know, that comes from the biblical, um, background that um, truly you are you are a strange God, you are a hidden God, um, and God has to reveal God's self, 
but that's always been interpreted in, in an intellectual framework, that it's a matter of what our minds are capable of grafting in the um, physical world, and then we go beyond that and we have some idea by a um, kind of what they used to call analogy or negative, uh, uh, the via negativa that you cannot deny um, some aspects of God that he's that he's changeable, that he's that he's, he's, he's he can suffer, all that kind of thing. That he is that transcendent being. But it's that's all within basically. Um, it, it's kind of like a mind trip. Um, it's something that we do with our minds, and, and the Western tradition, philosophical tradition, has kind of uh, fought over that, and the theological tradition has fought over that. Um, as from the earliest um, centuries. But if we think that God, this no-name uh, God, this God who has not had a name beforehand because we've not understood what that is, and we, don't, we have not had a way of understanding, we think that this God is a matter of relationship, uh, not uh, intellectual transcendence, that this is a relationship that goes beyond... Uh, Anything that we are capable of in our relationships, all of us, all human beings experience relationships, and we value relationships immensely. Everybody has to have key relationships. So we know kind of instinctively what a relationship is. But if we think about God and God's relationship with, between, in the, within the Trinity, which is part of the, um, the Christian uh, belief, that, that, there, that God is this, is this relationship of love Within uh, a, a, a three-person uh, identity, and that there's there's this this love is so profound and so immense and so radical, it's so self-giving that it's it's almost impossible for us to know that. So that so that well, it is impossible for us to know it, given un, unless God should reveal God's self to us in in terms of that that immense love. So when God is, is other to us, it's because God doesn't be, is not like us um, in any way, except that we have this um, yearning, I think, uh, for relationship and for love. And then when Christ, when Jesus of Nazareth shows us this, um, this love unto death and love beyond death, we suddenly get a glimpse of of the, of the character and nature of God. And it's, it's something that you pick up, not with your head. <laughs> I mean, we have to use our minds. I mean, you know, we, we can't get away from that. But the, the, the revelation is in our heart and um, in, our, in, our, in our relationship with that, with that love that reveals itself in the world. So we, are, we become a relationship. We, we ourselves become a relationship with the divine, uh, with, with the revealed divine. So... It's very exciting when you think, you know, there's this new relationship that comes into the world that we can, we can become part of that, we can become that, we can be drawn into the Trinity. So that's, a, of course, a classical way of understanding the human, um, what God, God calls a human being too, but um, it, it's always been loaded with that kind of intellectual sense as well. It's kind of the, the old, pre, uh, priests and ministers always, well, mostly priests because they, they have these, uh, they have a liturgical year, they dread um, having to preach on Trinity Sunday, so they have the notorious <laughs> idea what they're going to say about this <laughs> this mystery of, of the three persons in one. 
And the, so it's, it's approached intellectually. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to get your head around. But in terms of an experiential um, relationship that we've been led into and that we are being led into step by step along the way, we're being changed, as uh, Paul says, from glory to glory, um, then of course then it becomes meaningful. And the starting point always is, is the life and the witness of, of Jesus. So, yeah, I, I'm, I try in the book to, to change the, um, the framework from an intellectual viewpoint about the Trinity to a relational one. Yeah, you, I'm not the first person to do that, but the, anyway, I, in the book I do that. Yeah, I think one of the thing, one of the quotes that you had in the book that I thought was so good. Go ahead. Um, and, and there were a lot of them. Was um, you, you said that God is not something? God is not something that can be thought. He's something that has to be encountered. And I really right, I thought exactly, that just exactly sums right. up exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. That we we've had this really Greek framework that we've inherited that teaches right. us that everything has to be apprehended by the mind, which right. I had never even thought of. And I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later in the conversation, but I had never really thought about the fact that in some sense that really does violence to God because in, in some ways we're trying to apprehend him instead of right. encounter him. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Yep. The, and I think that's, that, that is, and in the churches, of course, um, the work of enabling people to encounter that radical love is is a pathway of discipleship, and it can only happen essentially on a one-to-one uh, basis. That you have to be around people uh, for, for whom that pathway is very real, and you have to realize that that's that's the pathway you're being called to. It's not just turning up on Sunday. You're called to this this incredible relationship and this encounter, as you call it that. Absolutely. As we say here in the South, it's something that's got to be caught, not taught. Yep, really, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really yeah. true. Um, yeah. w- with the title of your book being Virtually Christian, uh, vir- Virtually Christian, um, I, I just thought that was such a fascinating title because you say in the book that Christianity should always be considered virtual because it's always right. a provisional version of itself. What do you right. think it means for Christianity to be virtual? Well, um, if, if what Jesus taught and, and what Jesus did, as so many people recognize, is, is almost impossible for us, as he said, you know, it's impossible for you to do this, but with God all things are possible. So there's this kind of paradox within Christianity. He's asking us to do these crazy things like, you know, give up everything and to follow him, take up the cross daily, all that stuff, which is so alien to our, our instinctual uh, self-preservation. Um, that if, if, if the standard is set, if the bar is set so high, and you um, form an organization that claims to rep- to fulfill that teaching, there's always going to be somebody, there's going to be a bunch of people saying, uh-uh, no, you're not. There's, some- there's something that you're leaving out, there's something you're not doing, there's something that's not not working about this. And so um, in in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, which, of course, I was formed in in many ways, they, they had this saying that um, Ecclesia Semper, Reformanda, which means that the church is always being reformed. Now, of course, what they mean by that is that the hierarchy does the reforming. Mm. But um, um, but essentially, it means that the, it means the same thing that there's always this reformation going on within Christianity again and again, and, and it has to be that way. Um, 
it's it's very it's very extreme demand to require and and pro, um, provoke this this um, this uh, call to reformation all the time reformation reforming and uh, and so every every um, kind of incarnation or version of Christianity we have is always uh, virtual Christianity it's, it's it's always not um, the full um, uh, account of it it's not it's not, it's not the, the full representation of what uh, the gospel is calling us to is virtually Christian. Of course, it's still in the world. It's still something very real. So that's why I chose uh, the word virtual. But at the same time, part of the meaning of that is that it's not just that we're on this road, uh, always reforming and being reformed, but that because Christ has had this massive impact um, within the world, within world culture, within historical culture, and that's really down to Gerard, that, that, that's an amazing discovery that he brings us, that, that, that Christ is not this kind of narrow spiritual reality that's going to kind of get you to heaven at the other side of your death, but there's this uh, cultural um, uh, upheaval that, that Christ represents, and it's always working uh, in, in, the, um, in the kind of uh, the, the inner grain of, of our history, and that means to say that there's a lot of people who are affected by Christ and they don't even know it, mm. um, and and they might they they may very well be responding. And you know, I'm sure you know people like that. I certainly know people like that who behave in many Christian in a very Christian way, and they may be of other religions or they maybe have no religion. But they, I I I, suddenly, I I look at them and I said, well, that person is actually a better Christian than I am. <laughs> What um, uh, Gandhi is the perfect example who you brought up absolutely. a little while ago. He's probably the premier example of the 20th century. He really is. He really is. I mean, G- Gandhi says um, he said that um, Christians are the only ones who seem to not realize that um, Christ is nonviolent. <laughs> so true. So true. And he realized it, and and he and he followed it through. So I mean, like he really is that. He is the supreme virtual Christian. Yeah. Yeah. As you say. Yeah. So a huge part, a huge piece of this book is talking about the sign system, the human sign system. And you say in the book that, that the sign system is humanity's defining feature and, how, and, and that signs construct our lived world. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of the sign? Sure, uh, Raybon. I mean, this, this element in the book uh, it came to me gradually, um, and it's really because um, Christianity has been infected in its um, self-concept, and we've mentioned this already, by Greek metaphysics. And the, the classic um, uh, form of metaphysics for most Christians, uh, and it has m- many other um, Aspects, but the one we all know is that there's heaven is up there and earth is down here. So um, heaven is this other space, um, and it defines the earth, and the earth defines heaven by not being heaven. And heaven becomes very, very clear in people's minds that that's where we're going to go, and that's what this whole thing's about. But that is a metaphysical um, proposition that there is this other space which no one's ever seen but is, is uh, uh, constructed um, by 
our intellects, and especially Plato um, back in Greek philosophy. So when I um, understood that, and it was, and Gerard helped a lot with that, although um, that's not the only source, but I began to try to think through, well, if, if this um, Christianity business, which always means so much to me, as, as we've been saying in this kind of relational uh, sense, um, if this Christianity business is important, it has to have a framework. What is the actual framework in which it's working, in which it's actually having an impact and doing what God intended it to do? Now, if it's not to do with this um, um, intellectual other world, uh, the metaphysical world beyond, uh, which makes this world um, decisively less important, um, it's by making this world unimportant that you make heaven important, but if it's not that, uh, what is it? And um, it, because, of, because Girard has uh, uh, a number of places in his work where he describes the origin of our, our human science system and the origin of language uh, out of the primary crisis, so in other words, the primary victim, and we're... We make victims all the time. Uh, what, what's happened in Boston and the reaction to it, it's all about trying to find the victim, trying to create the victim. It's nothing new, and, and it's certainly nothing we've outgrown. But if what Gerard does is he, he projects it back to a very early stage in the evolution of human beings from, um, from a kind of primate level, that they have this, this crisis, this moment of crisis of competition that comes because they're so powerfully imitative and the imitation gets out of hand, and it causes violence. Beforehand, it was controlled by by um, uh, 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 animal hierarchy, by uh, the, the weaker deferring to the stronger. But there's something about human beings that get to the point where they don't hold back. It doesn't matter. And it becomes a crisis of all against all. And then the victim, the, uh, the, the first victim is killed. And that creates this moment of suspended um, sensation that uh, opens a space in the world that was never there before, this killing and then the peace that, um, that, is, that results from it. So that then suddenly there's a primary moment of the sacred, of something incredibly important that we've done and that has changed us and that has these repercussions and it's the birth of the God, uh, according to Gerard. But at the same time, it gives birth to vocalization that we begin to be able to refer to that, that event, and, and, and especially when it's repeated in ritual form, which it is very quickly because of its benefits, that we then begin to have some primary um, signification. We, we, we begin to use a sign or a series of signs about that event and about its, and everything that flows out from it, that we, we can stabilize the world and give name to everything um, because we have a primary name that is not an immediate signal uh, of, of um, hunger or anger or whatever. It, it's an abstract symbol. And so abstract symbols then result from it. So my argument in the book is that if that's what happened, if Gerard is right, that our, uh, our, our cultural scheme our way of being able to communicate 
um, through language and through signs, and almost infinitely, because there's, a, there's no limit to the amount of things that we can signify. We're always kind of dreaming up new angles, and every, every time anybody sits down to write, they, they, they use words in a new way, a different way. We've got this kind of infinite uh, capacity of language. That if, that's, if that came from that primary moment of, of, um, of violence, then if Christ comes into the world, and he reveals that violence to us by undergoing it himself, the crowd turning against him, he becomes the scapegoat for all, he becomes the victim, but he doesn't remain the victim, he, he, he's raised up by, by the Father, so that suddenly we see the death of the victim transformed into life and into non-violent life, it becomes a new point of meaning, a new um, generative point of significance. It, so when then Jesus says in the Gospels, go forth and teach all nations, um, that Christianity is always a matter of teaching, of, of speaking and teaching. And then at the beginning of John's Gospel, um, and the, the author uh, uh, reduces everything to, to the Word. He says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and, and the Word came into the world and, and was made flesh. But the, everything is, with Christians is communication, is, is, is a sign. Now, why is that? It's because if the first sign of the murdered victim, whom we covered over, we actually we lied about in order to make it work, I mean, that's Gerard's position that the, the, the violence is followed by a lie. If that's our primary sign system, and then Jesus comes and kind of explodes it, but explodes it with forgiveness and um, non-violence, then we have a new sign system coming into the world. And every time uh, Christianity is announced in, in that sense of love and forgiveness and transformation, that does, actually does something to our brains. Mm-hmm. If our brains are, if, the, if, the, if the, the, uh, hominid brain was formed out of that primary moment, which is the Girardian thesis, you know, like, I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying. It's, it's formed. There's something happens in the gray matter and the white matter because of this. And we all have this capacity then afterwards for language and for meaning. Well, if, if Christ comes into the world with this, this changing the very nature of that primary sign, then he's also changing, he's actually changing the, um, the software of our brain. Mm. Now, mm. It's, it's, it's hard for that to have its, have, to have a radical effect because the, the, the software of violence is so deeply embedded. But what I'm saying is that over the years, and, and especially since um, the 20th century, both with um, uh, the human sciences, which Girard used, but then the, the tremendous um, cataclysms of violence in the 20th century, that we've begun to begin to, uh, uh, I think, to pay attention and, and to be more willing to surrender our, our minds and our, and, our, and our brains themselves um, to, to this new meaning. So really what, what Jesus is doing is recreating uh, humanity from within. Mm. And that's why and the, sign, the sign system is, is pivotal to that. So in other words, Raybon, uh, to kind of sum up, I, I, I changed the framework of Christianity from this kind of metaphysical worldview and, and the kind of soul, the immortal soul that um, mediates between the two, to this radical intervention in the very construction of our humanity in and through science. Mm. Um, so it, it's, a, it, it's an anthropological um, 
redemption or salvation. But then, of course, the scriptures is full of that. You know, that the, the God came to uh, Jesus came to make a new creation. Anthropology. I, I, I'm really from people like you and Michael Harden, and as I read more and study more, I'm really realizing that anthropology is really the only pathway to theology, that we right. have we have cut theology off into this separate metaphysical category that's all about a spiritual existence when God himself, Jesus, Jesus it was incarnate God in flesh. He incarnated in the flesh to show us who God is so that we right. can't learn who God is without, uh, without understanding humanity itself, because that's how he chose Absolutely. to reveal himself. There you are. Yeah. That's that, it. And, that, and that's, that's, that's a slip over. That's the kind of turning the whole thing over. That is, that is amazing. And it's still, it's still in its earliest days in, in impacting Christianity and all the churches, all the denominations. Um, but it, it, it will, it will, it's bound to make headway and 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 uh, create these new communities of of nonviolence and and the relationship. I know some of the people that are listening right now have not read Gerard's work or or uh, Gerardian scholars or anything like that. So I, I, just to just to kind of help them out, I just want to make sure they can follow they can follow where we're going here because I think this is so profound and it's easily missed if someone's not not really uh, read up on this topic. But it's the whole idea that I know you bring out in the book that violence is the human sacred. That what Girard right. is basically saying is that violence is what gave birth not only to meaning, but it gave birth to it gave birth to religion. It gave birth to the entire realm of the sacred, and it even gave right. birth to language. Um, right. That, that our the whole purpose of language was for us to try and account um, for something that we couldn't. Like you said, that we couldn't touch, we couldn't feel, but this transcendent feeling that something had happened right. in our midst. And that what you're saying is, is that Jesus has reconstituted human meaning from being that of violence, where the sacred is all about sacrifice and scapegoating and all of these things, to where now it's all about forgiveness and love, and that he's actually changing the neural pathways in our brain. He's <laughs> actually right. he, he's actually creating a step of evolution inside our brain that gets right. that violence that's hardwired in there right. that lets right. us all of a sudden that we're in this transitionary period where those violent connections are breaking and are being replaced mm. with compassion and non-rivalrous relationships and love and forgiveness. Tony that is powerful. That is so powerful. Yeah, and 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 it's not as though uh, this is a kind of uh, which people can accuse it of. This is this is an academic intellectual exercise. It's right there at the beginning of the Bible. I mean, you have the, that that primary story directly out of the Garden of Eden, which has been basically ignored in in forming our understanding of of uh, what, what was called original sin, you know, from those from Augustine onwards. But you have the story of Cain and Abel, right off the bat, the first basically historical event, you know, outside that, that, that semi-mythical place of the garden, the first thing that happens is a murder. Mm. And, and from that, Cain um, becomes um, an outcast, a curse from the earth, but then... Strangely, God protects him. It's almost as if God kind of goes along with the with the system at that point, and then 
uh, Cain uh, becomes the founder of the first city, and that's that's amazing. That the first walled space that um, defended itself against others, that protected its, its possessions, and was prepared to use violence against others. The walls are, uh, are the, um, the, the the signal of that the, um, the the shape of that. It comes directly after. Um, to the murder, and then from that, seven generations later, we have Lamech, who makes that incredible curse of anybody who, um, uh, if Cain was avenged seven times, I will be avenged 77 times. So the Bible, right off the bat, shows the exponential character of violence, but it gets out of hand very, very quickly. And it has, there's a kind of, there's a very profound and, and powerful understanding of violence in those early stories, but of course they don't have the way to transform it that you that you get from the suffering servants and then Jesus who does that. Uh, but definitely you can see how Revelation, uh, Christian Revelation, in Genesis is is right on that right on that issue right from the very beginning. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that one of the arguments that I've frequently heard um, when I talk about nonviolence, as a matter of fact, we were at a fellowship, uh, Steve, my co-host and I, we were at a fellowship that they'd invited us to to talk about um, nonviolence. And of course, when you when you begin to talk about nonviolence, the subject of war comes up. And inevitably, when you talk about just war theory and all that, someone always brings up World War II and Hitler and and to justify the violence. And one of the things I brought up was how, you know, the United States was also not just because we dropped, you know, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and firebombed uh, cities in Germany and Japan. And, and they, they were like, but wait a minute, apart from that, <laughs> it was, we were on the good side. We were the good guys. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the thing that hit me in that moment that I said to them was the very thing that you were just talking about with Lamech, that no, 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 what we're missing is that violence itself, it's like an atom bomb. We might start right. off with a little, with a little molecule that seems right. completely harmless and maybe even justified, but right. you cannot separate that molecule from the devastation that it creates when it's unleashed. And mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that we have this tendency to think that we can isolate violence into particular justified circumstances and think that we can somehow contain it and control it when we miss that the very nature of violence is that it, it, it's a fire that rages out of control, that when you open right. that Pandora's box, you can't put right. it back in. Right. But what you're yeah, saying, I mean, Tony, that's exciting me, that's re- that I've not heard anyone else say, is that Jesus that, that, that Jesus's compassion and Jesus's forgiveness is the exact same way but even more so that it is that it is that leaven in the loaf it's that mustard seed that starts right. out small but when it's let out of the box when you've right. got a gandhi who stands up to the british empire right. with love right. that one yeah. person turns into a, a force that's strong enough to overthrow an empire right absolutely and um you you can see how that violence has accumulated has accumulated uh, across the centuries, um, and in the twentieth century you had this incredible um, explosion with Nazism, 
and um, and then the the, uh, the coming of violence in uh, Soviet Russia, and it always, as well as, um, and this is the thing that, you know, I I understood um, relatively late is that um, these very violent states um, they not only make war on others and they, and they cause incredible um, bloodshed, but they make war on a victim within their own uh, society. Hmm. And that uh, Nazism um, lost the war to the Allies, but tried very hard to win the war against the Jews. Hmm. Uh, that is to make to make it a permanent victim of the Jews, and that's still spinning it spinning its way out now, of course, in the Middle East, that the, you know, the uh, Israeli people do not want that to happen to them again. And so one thing leads to another, and it's never ending. Mm. Uh, but exactly as you say, um, within this crisis, uh, the, this exponential power of Jesus to transform our humanity uh, then becomes more and more important, uh, in, in apparent. And... Um, Suddenly, we realize what Christianity is, is meant to be doing, and, and that it does have the power of, of a Bonhoeffer, for example, to resist and, and to announce another way all the way through to the end. Now, of course, you know, you can't make those choices for people, but what you can do is you can create communities where people, what we were saying before, are transformed more and more from within, from within their neural pathways, so that come, come the moment of decision, and that's kind of thing I always hope for myself, that come the moment of decision, Christ will be embedded in me enough. And it's not a matter of judgment, because we're, we're trying, we're on, we're on the same path as, as Jesus here, and um, we know we all fail, but that I can make those choices the same as Jesus. And uh, that's what Christianity is about, is actually being formed in that new way of, um, of generative nonviolence, generative uh, forgiveness, compassion. That Christ brings into the world. So right at the very moment when there's this, uh, you know, this um, roiling uh, mass of violence throughout the world, at the same time Christianity comes to a, an awareness of itself and say, "Oh my goodness, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is we have precisely a human response to the crisis of violence in our world, mm. a human divine response." Mm. Mm. You, you talk about um, Jesus as the photon of compassion. And the fact his photosensitivity, the fact that he reflects back to us um, mm-hmm. our own nature, and by that transforms us. Can you talk a little bit about the photon of compassion because it plays such a huge role in your book? Right. Well, um, it, it was it was trying to to find an expression. I was trying to find an expression, a term for the way in which our science system. And this is this is the broad human science system which I see at work now in the internet and in the movies. If you think about it, at the time of Jesus, um, the first century, the most images that Jesus would have seen would have been perhaps Roman shields and Roman eagles. If if you went, if a squadron of soldiers happened to pass him by, or he went to Jerusalem, the temple itself would be a massive sign. But they're kind of, of course, they had. Um, um, there are scriptures as well, but the uh, the wealth of images, and it's not even a wealth, it's a sea, it's an ocean of images in which we're 
we're uh, swimming all the time. The amount of uh, imagery we see every day on the internet, on on uh, cell phones, on and movies and TV, is is itself a radical change in humanity. And I don't think people again um, that we have we've transformed the way of, in which we exist as human beings in the world. If you if you talk about it. A rural community, I don't know, in the 15th or 16th century, again, the same things would apply. Suddenly, in the 20th century, you have this explosion of imagery and um, screens, uh, visual screens that are communicating something to us all the time. And um, my uh, argument was that because Christ is changing the kind of the core circuit. Uh, the, the, the motherboard of our um, time system, every now and again, in that media stream, as it's called, every now and again, uh, from it will flash the, the compassion and the forgiveness of Christ. And this is, is, is mostly evident in movies, um, which, of course, have a whole narrative, um, and they've got, a, they've got a plot, and... and if it deals with violence, they, they have to find a way of resolving it. Of course, the common way of resolving violence is to kill the bad guy and then to feel good at the end. But a lot of movies don't do that. They question it, and they and, and they often have some kind of self-giving or surrender um, in in the movie. Um, and very often, they signal the cross itself, the actual physical image of the cross. So uh, it can be that, or it can be just a gesture of forgiveness, a gesture of compassion, which is all everybody's looking for, and I think within, you know, like uh, the what is it, the meme, um, uh, hug a stranger, you know, like you, you, <laughs> the, you just got to hug somebody. Well, why is that? Why why would you want to hug a stranger? It's because there's this love in the world, you know, that that justifies it. That, that may, you know, in the ancient world, you, you stayed clear of strangers, and strangers also were very. Um, they were a lot in danger. You know, they could be killed. But the, the idea of, of hugging a stranger or someone who you don't know um, is is itself a, a, the photon of compassion. So what I'm saying a photon is a is a particle of light. Of course, as we know, it comes from physics. But I had looking for an image or a name for it that this particle of light, which is the light, not an intellectual light, it's the light of of forgiveness and compassion shines out in the world uh, again and again. And, you know, politicians have a sense of it. They want, they want to also kind of um, talk about that. Um, they talk about compassion and uh, neighborly help after the, some kind of crisis. And of course, they're also talking about revenge or, or, you know, to destroy the evil people, whoever they are. But there's a sense in the world that, you know, compassion is the human way. And... Um, that when you have this figure of Christ who um, showed it most most um, vividly of, of any uh, figure in human history, there's no one who shows the compassion of Christ. Uh, as, for example, the, you know, the, the, the thief on the cross, um, you know, he showed compassion for him and, uh, because he was open to it and, uh, and to the people around him. He didn't call down vengeance upon them. That... That's a profound um, uh, witness and uh, sign, they, that, that, that testimony of Christ in the world um, affects um, movies, songs, videos, books, mm. 
mm. uh, again and again. And, and it's all part of changing this, um, this structure of humanity that we're in. And that's the thing, that's the way in which I'm somewhat different from Gerard, because Gerard actually has quite a pessimistic viewpoint about the, the, the power of mimesis and, and rivalry within the big nation-states, uh, eventually leading, um, likely, it, it doesn't, it's, not ne- it's not inevitable, but it's likely that it will lead to some kind of um, apocalyptic um, destruction. And that's always possible, but that's not a Christian message. The Christian message is that there's this thing in the world that changes everything, and you keep, you keep um, kind of banging on about it. I mean, as a Christian, yeah, that's what you talk about. That's, that's, that's what's important to you, and, uh, and, and it is real, and it's effective, and who knows that it, 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 can, it can win the day, and my, my faith is, my belief is that it will win the day, that it will actually turn things around. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's like that that whole passage in Romans five, you know, where where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That that right. while we see the power of violence and sometimes can be overwhelmed by um, the negativity and the and just the 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 sheer gosh. It's just overwhelming to turn on the news because there's right. you, you just see so much violence, and yet as right. Christians, it seems like that's exactly what we're called to is a hope um, that right. says that God's love is is a deeper kind of like C.S. Lewis would say a deeper magic. It's it's right. it's yeah. more foundational than violence. Right. It's at the heart of the very universe. Yeah, yeah. I I agree completely with what I mean. If Christ is risen from the dead, which is, is the core of Christian faith, that means to say there is a real person somewhere or other, and we don't fully understand it, but he appears to his disciples, there is a real person somewhere who is completely trans his humanity is completely transformed. Yeah. And that is and that's at the core of the of the physical universe. I mean that's what I mean, it's this kind of scandal of the cross and resurrection that it it turns every it says, you know, that that our our salvation is not in another space, another uh, cosm- another extra cosmic realm beyond this one. It's in in a Christ who who will return in the same way as you saw and go. That is in this space, is in this human space, and this person is completely transformed. So it means to say the material universe. I know we're getting kind of kind of, kind of little um, uh, heady here, but uh, the material universe is already transformed, and who knows how that will will work out. So. You know, there's no there's no room for um, despair or, as um, you say, negativity in, in the Christian message. That that behold, I make all things new. Mm, mm, mm. Well, one of the things you talked about um, that that I found really interesting was the idea of differentiation and the idea that Jesus as the crucified is the saving differentiation for the human race. And I know when Brian, we had Brian McLaren on to talk about his newest book um, several months back. And he was talking about how the thing that's so harmful to us. So many times we think that it's our differences that lead to violence and that lead to conflict but in reality, that, that what Girard is saying is that it's really our sameness, it's our similarities that lead to violence. Can you talk about Jesus as the saving differentiation and, and, and how that works? Sure. I mean, Girard tells us, he describes how the 
crisis of violence is brought on by what he calls undifferentiation, so that I'm the same as you, um, and I'm the same as the next person, and I can't find my difference from that person because I want exactly what that person wants, that person wants what I want, and we're all struggling over the same um, objects of desire or objects of desire, and we lose our sense of identity. I mean, that's the way he describes the crisis, that the mob becomes this kind of... Um, uh, being this monster all in itself, that people are merged with the with the victimizing mob, and of course we, that, we see that so many times in history. But now we have this undifferentiation because um, everybody's seeking to win, to be the best, or to have to have the most. I mean that's what our, our society uh, offers to us, and of course not everybody can have it, so that it just it increases this uh, sense of desire all the time, and that and that goes with um, the rivalry between nations or between um, uh, movements uh, for for um, uh, religious causes, and maybe maybe uh, um, violent religious causes, whatever. Um, that that just it makes it pushes us up against each other all the time. So when when you have something like um, what happened in Boston. Um, there's this sense that violence almost takes on this uh, this sense of an entity in its own right. It pervades everything. So everybody turns around and tries to find the one to blame, the group to blame, the, the ones who are um, the really really bad ones. I mean, there's so much you see on, on Facebook or on Twitter, that kind of thing, um, whether it's, whether it's, Al-Qaeda, or, or whether it's uh, radical religion, or whether it's uh, American imperialism, or whatever. You know, people are always uh, making these accusations back and forth, so we there's no space that we can find between us all the time. That's the, uh, the sense of undifferentiation. And suddenly, if you, if you look, and within that crisis, um, Christ appears, if you despair of that, that sense of that that um, um, self-destructive humanity that is that is based in desire and violence, and and you look and look, uh, and suddenly, and I think this is a moment of conversion for people. Um, you'll see that Christ represents the, two, the the real differentiation. It's not a differentiation because I win. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Because it's a differentiation because I'm prepared to lose. Mm. But in losing, um, there's this, it, you know, as as Jesus um, described it, there's this boundless life. So suddenly you realize that within this uh, hyper, uh, this world of hyper mimeticism, as Gerard calls it, we are we are hyper mimetic, always imitating each other's desires. The one true point of of um, differentiation that that can save us is to find the self-surrendering, self-giving, generous. Um, healing uh, victim, the one, the one who uh, doesn't follow that pattern through to the, to the, to the death, uh, the death of the other, but to, to his own death. So suddenly there comes a moment of, of revelation where uh, differentiation comes not through violence but through love, and um, and I think that's a, that becomes that's that's a that's a human or anthropological event that's extremely important and more and more important for our our time. Mm. Mm.
You, you talk in the book about movement, and you know there, there's been a real sense in which Western Christianity has looked at God as um, part of his transcendence is the fact that he's timeless, the fact that he's um, unaffected. Um, and and I, I, in the book, I just found it so fascinating that you were talking about how the cross actually interrupted time at a, at a very foundational level. Can you talk about Jesus's interruption of time and how that affects how we see the whole, the whole time continuum? Right. Um, I mean, one of the things I've said about Christianity is that it has a linear sense of time as opposed to um, a, a circular sense of time that is true of um, other cultures um, and it's true of nature. Um, nature has a, a cycle, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, there's, there's, there's a sense in... in, in um, I think in the pagan world, for sure, that, that the Christianity came into, that people's uh, lives are determined by powers beyond them. That they could call that fate, or they could call it um, they could call it the gods, whatever. That, that there was a certain sense of inevitability about what happened to people. You know, you're born, you live, and you die, um, and maybe have some fleeting satisfaction, but there is no there's no um, meaning beyond uh, what happens to you, what, uh, what by accident and by, by a, a mixture of accident and, and, and destiny uh, occurs to you. But when Christ comes into the world, uh, and this is true whether you kind of believe it or not, if you believe, whether you believe um, the message of Christianity, Christ offers this sense of, if you if you uh, accept my way, then it opens you to a completely transformed future. Um, that there, there comes a point, there comes there comes a meaning in in loving and in forgiving, and in offering yourself to the other. That that escapes the faith, it escapes the gods, and that's one of the reasons why I think Christianity initially was so successful and still is in its way. It offers. It always offers a future. It always offers an openness, and and so so when um, if if human beings um, uh, find their time determined by the inevitability of death, then then time means very little. But if time is opened up by Christ um, to this this radical newness, this possibility of transformation, suddenly the world becomes mobilized starts moving, it, it, not in a, in a circular or cyclical way, but it starts moving forward. And that's kind of, I think, part of the history of the West. Now, a lot could be said in criticism of that because it's been so exponential in, in, in the violent way and um, in terms of, um, of the colonialism, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, uh, movement forward and what used to be called progress is, was a central element of, of Western culture. Now, I think this is, this is a kind of worldly or secular uh, uh, appropriation of a time brought into the world by Christ, that there's this sense of a future, of a, of a transformative future. So uh, suddenly, um, time for uh, a Christian becomes filled with another meaning apart from death. 
uh, apart from the inevitability of of my destiny uh, to die, and therefore it becomes immensely rich and and um, exciting, really, and that has affected um, philosophy, thought, and of course affects our our, our culture. Um, that we still uh, talk in terms of development and, and um, kind of economic growth, that kind of thing. But that's as I say, these are all um, these are uh, uh, versions and and in many ways distorted versions of of the Christian hope for a, a transformation in love. So what what we're saying is that Christianity, of all the religions, has brought this this radical movement forward. Um, because the Savior, the Messiah, has already come, and we kind of know what that is, and that's affecting the world here and now, opening up uh, time for us. So people like you and me, for example, where born, you know, you know, as I was describing at the beginning, um, when you talked you talk to me a little bit about your own story, is that kind of you, you begin off um, serving and working within, within the church, but then your future is opened up by this, by, by basically Jesus, and he carries you to a place, to the places that you never thought you'd ever go. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd come to the United States. It was never in my, my mind that I'd ever come to the United States. Um, and, but I did, and, and I became part of this country. Uh, so there's that, there's that drive, that well, drive perhaps isn't the right word, there's this, 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 this future, this openness is brought into the world um, by the figure of Christ. And of course, that can, as we say, that, that that helps um, nations kind of claim that they're the leading edge of that, and then they assert themselves over others. But underneath it all, and with it all, there's this sense of, well, the Son of Man um, it will return, but it will, it will return in to, to heal the nations, as it says in the Book of Revelation. And that's mm-hmm. that's the true that's and that's the relationship of hope. That hope is not a vague. Um, um, spiritual and uh, kind of uh, uh, imagined reality is actually a relationship with this future time that Christ has brought into the world. So yeah, I think and so I, I I find that very, very important, um, and especially using the the idea of signs and how that changes us. That time is always on the move, and and as you were saying, uh, more sin abounds, the more grace abounds. That as the crisis accumulates. Um, you know, the, the hope for a real change and possibilities of change uh, in in actual future. I mean, they say, will the 21st century see the extinction of humanity? Uh, and so some scientists think that way, but I don't think so. I think that, you know, the, the power of Christ is enough to bring us into a really new place. Mm, mm. I'm with you, Tony. I am so with you there. Uh, you, you talked a moment ago uh, as you were as you were talking about time about how nations sometimes try and grab hold of that language and that we're on the cutting edge of what's happening and this kind of thing and it really brought to mind how in the book you talk about two types of desire you talk about consumeristic desire and contemplative desire and I found this right. so fascinating Tony because I, I not only do do we see it all around us but I can see it within myself those two desires really uh, fighting with the, with each other, um, each trying to gain the ascendancy. Can you talk some about uh, those two different natures of desire and how you see those playing out? Well, that's quite a, a, a crucial part of the, of the book because um, you are described um, 
competitive desire or mimetic desire, and our culture has developed a means of uh, appearing to satisfy that because of the the huge increase in production, industrialization, and um, and uh, technology. That there's there's always, you know, for example, I got myself a new laptop. <laughs> just the other day, and the store is full of laptops. You know, there's always a laptop for everybody if you've got the money. And um, you, there, 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 isn't a, there isn't a shortage of goods unless there's an economic collapse, and that's, uh, that's something everybody's trying to avoid. But basically, our society says, yes, everybody can have everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, of course, if you know, people know that's really not possible. There are there are limits. There have to be limits, and and these economic crises happen because some people want more and more and more uh, and much more. Um, so there's always that built-in um, uh, instability and uh, chaos to uh, consumer consumerist desire. Um, and Gerard remarks on on that. Uh, it doesn't really have um, uh, a solution for it, but uh, that our society is the first society on the planet that has actually made a virtue out of mimetic desire. Mm. Other other societies and cultures avoid it like the plague. It's so dangerous in a, in a, in a situation of limited resources. So um, we live in the, in the world of consumerist desire, but I think there is this other desire that Chris Price has, has um, released into the world, and I, I do some um, kind of uh, writing on on the Middle Ages, on, on the, um, the first Romantic period in the 12th century, um, as as an indication or illustration that it is possible, and because of Christ, um, that I can desire something, and I especially desire the other, the other person, but I can suspend that desire. Um, because Christ has brought that possibility in the world, into the world, that self-giving to the other, and that that becomes then a kind of redemptive desire. So desire becomes a uh, uh, an ambivalent phrase. I mean, uh, the great thing about Christianity is that it doesn't destroy. Well, I think anyway, it doesn't destroy desire. It doesn't say, well, desire is the is the root of of evil. Mm. It, it certainly can create a lot of evil, but actually uh, Christianity asserts desire by by transforming it into love. Mm. And you 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 do actually desire to love the other. I mean, your partner or um, other people in the community. There is you have a desire in relationship to them, but it's a self-giving or contemplative desire. So I think. That is important to assert, and it's, again, it's an anthropological reality, and it's not a kind of uh, alien spiritual reality that I'm um, that I'm practicing virtues or something, or that I have the grace to do this. Of course, yes, I do have the grace, but that that becomes a kind of religious language that removes it from the reality of, of human history. But I think that the possibility of desiring for the sake of the other. Is something really that that is present in in our in our time and culture as well. You know, there's there's a lot of people, a lot of people um, working um, for the sake of the other, um, and 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 desiring to do so. So, 
There is another form of desire, um, and I, I believe that that is part of the, trans- the transforming of our gray matter, you know, like our neural pathways, that the more that desire is embedded in us, the more we learn it, it becomes more satisfying to us, it becomes more part of who we are, mm. and we, learn, we, we, desire, we desire to practice it more and more because it's actually very satisfying. That, that's the, the, the whole idea of that contemplative desire goes so hand in hand with what you talk about in the book about, um, uh, about Jesus really putting an end to rivalry and the fact that he wasn't, he wasn't trying to uh, become the king or he wasn't trying to become the master. He was always found in the role of servant and he was always right. found in the role of the one who would, who would die rather than kill. And really, Tony, right. I think that's at the heart of it. I think that's why nonviolence is such an integral part of who God is because it's basically saying that I refuse to put myself before you, that I refuse to, uh, to force my way upon you. I would rather be forced into your way than to usurp you and force you into mine. I think that's, well, yeah. yeah, I think that's just so powerful. I mean, that's, that's very powerful because it's, People do that, and, and, and people do do it, you know. It, it, it immediately changes the heart of the other, you know. Even though you might be forcing that person to do something, the fact that they go along with you, assuming that they're not, you know, betraying anything, they're betraying themselves, or, you know, they're, um, they're, not, they're not doing evil, but, you know, like Jesus says, if, if one of the occupation forces forces you to go one mile, you go two miles with him um, to, to, to carry whatever he's asking you to carry. And suddenly, if you see that, you say, wow, mm. I don't understand that. That's, that's something completely different from what I'm used to. And it actually seems good. <laughs> mm. And so mm. that's very, very powerful when people practice that. I, I think, you know, I, I think it goes so hand in hand with you talking about the Jesus's photosensitivity, the fact that, the fact that, um, you know, like the turn the other cheek piece that Walter Wink pointed out so good about how that's not just a passivity, but it's actually you uh, you using your love to overcome and to reveal that other person's evil. And that if you just descend into their evil, there's no differentiation there and the evil right. just perpetuates. Right. But that when right. you when you confront that evil with love, with a refusal to descend into violence, that you're mirroring back that person's own violence to themselves. And then they're confronted with the ugliness of it. And it, and it really forces them to change on a heart level instead of a, instead of a restraint level or, or something that you're forcing upon them. You're actually, you're actually mirroring back that violence to them and letting it pierce their heart instead of conforming them to your will. I, I think that's so powerful, Tony, that I can see in my own life. I mean, even with something like, you know, I mean, just, just to be quite transparent here, even in my own life, you know, you can see something like a podcast, you can take a podcast mm-hmm. and you can begin to compare yourself to what other podcasts and radio shows and you know, how many, how many listeners do they have? What kind of guests are they having? Um, you know, all these kinds of things. And you find yourself ironically descending into rivalry mm-hmm. while you're talking about being non-rivalrous. Okay. I mean, it's very, it's very, it happens very easily. It happens so easily. I mean, and it can happen. I think sometimes we, 
we can kid ourselves into thinking that we're somehow um, immune uh, because we're talking about Jesus to these things, because sometimes the most competitive and rivalrous people and circumstances that I've ever been in have been something that was in the midst of talking about the things of God. It's just so ironic. It's, um, it's something that we have to, like you said, Jesus doesn't force his way on us. We have to allow it, um, to transform who we are. And that's just so, so beautiful. You, you talk in the book about, um, the virtual church and for anybody that's listened to this podcast for any period of time, they realize, um, that so many things I just, as I was reading this section, Tony, I just resonated with so much you said. And the, the interesting thing to me was how you actually even used some of the very language that Steve and I have used on this podcast that we've never heard anyone else say. And it was so affirming to hear you use some of the very uh, thoughts and ideas and even terminologies that we've used to talk about hierarchical structures and um, just the idea of following Jesus outside the bounds of institutional Christianity. And you really gave some interesting examples that I had never thought about before, one of which was Paul and how Paul demonstrates in the New Testament a break from the chain of command. I had never actually thought about that. Can you kind of unpack that for our listeners? Sure. I mean, having come from um, a very hierarchical church, and, you know, like the most ancient and evidently hierarchical church, but I think all churches have, have hierarchical elements, but um, I came from the Roman Catholic tradition. And, of course, um, for anybody who has any familiarity with uh, Catholicism, they, in, they've heard about the apostolic succession, that um, there's an unbroken chain of um, bishops, um, and it was Irenaeus who gave us the, uh, the uh, list uh, in one instance, the, the list in, in Rome, and of the bishops of Rome, um, and really when he he did that in the second century, it was actually an argument against Gnosticism. He wasn't really instituting um, a power structure; he was just saying, "Well, there's no secret doctrine. We all, you know, if there had been, these bishops would know, and they would have been passed on." But anyway, um, that became um, um, a touchstone, really, of, of Catholicism, that there is this unbroken chain of authority that derives from the apostles themselves. But I, I, as I examine the scriptures, um, and it's not hard to see, uh, you could see that, that Paul is very is adamant that he didn't get his apostolic calling from anybody else except Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He didn't... He, he, he didn't he didn't have hands laid on him. He it was important to Paul that he was in communion. And that's another thing, that's different. And it is important to be in communion because if you're none of us is perfect and none of us has all the answers, even though I'm sure, you know, you and I Ray Ball we think we do. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know, like we do we, we try to remain in communion, uh to be open to others and especially in in Paul's case it was to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem he and it was important for him to to um, to preserve that contact and that continuity because again it's part of the physical interruption of human history that Jesus was in a certain space, there wasn't real space and time, 
and there is a communion with that. So all that is important, but it didn't become a hierarchical uh, transmission of power for Paul at all. And he never, and he never really insisted on it in his ministry. I mean, you get the pastoral epistles, but certainly not uh, in the in the letters to the Corinthians or or to the Romans. And the pastoral epistles are, are late and you know dubious, Pauline authorship, that kind of thing. And so um, that, that at that level, uh, and this is the thing that spoke to me, and I found it also in the person of um, James of Jerusalem, who. <laughs> He doesn't figure in the Gospels at all, but suddenly he has all this authority in Jerusalem, um, and uh, he kind of has the final word in the Council of Jerusalem, chapter 15. So you have all these different uh, points of authority, figures of authority, but the beloved disciple and Paul are the, are the big ones for me because they kind of reflect my own experience that if Christ is at large in the world, and you know, when Paul was on his road to Damascus, he hasn't, he hasn't, he's not getting ordained by um, any kind of hierarchical figure. He has this kind of moment of crisis, and suddenly uh, Christ appears to him and says, Soul, soul, why are you persecuting me? It's, 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 an immense, it's a moment of immense uh, transformation in him. And it comes out of the kind of fabric of, of his own time and history. He's on the road. So I think that's true of, of at least even more true of our Christianity today. I usually, in the, in the book, I use examples of people like um, Madonna and uh, Bob Dylan and um, and um, others, uh, rap artists, people who have this kind of direct relationship with the figure of Christ. It doesn't it kind of doesn't make them perfect again, but they have that relationship and they have they're able to articulate it or to visualize it. So. So really, for me, uh, Christ cannot be wrapped up, and uh, especially today, cannot be wrapped up in any one um, form or format that claims authority. It's, it's, it's counter to the actual history of Christianity. God knows we've been 2,000 years out there. That's, that's a long time. I like to say, you know, that we are further away from Jesus in, in time than Jesus was from Abraham. Mm. You know, this mm. our, our Christianity has been going on longer wow. than Judaism was at the point of that Jesus was there. So you know, like we've been at this for a long time. So to think that this has not had a broad soaking effect in human culture and therefore able to inspire people outside the rigid framework is is absurd. I think to anthropology and history, it's a metaphysical viewpoint uh, and a legal viewpoint and. My own experience, like I say, in 73, in 74 in Rome, uh, was totally against it. I found Christ outside the church, really, and uh, despite being in Rome. So there's, there's always that powerful sense to me, and it's taken a long, a long road to try to articulate it against the claims of those organizations. But I don't think there's any holding back now communities and people who wish to be faithful to the nonviolent Christ and that is the key thing. If you see Christ as nonviolent, um, as it says in the first letter of John, you know, you don't need anybody to be to teach you. You've been taught by by God Himself. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I'm not advocating anarchy, um, and I believe in communion and and non-rivalry with established churches. But the life is in that spontaneity, I think, mm. and in that that sense of Christ broadcast in the world. 
You, you said you said in the book that hierarchy creates itself a distancing from actual humanity, and I think that's so true, Tony. Because that I think that's you know none of us are advocating for not not sharing with other believers, not sharing life with other believers. None of us are Absolutely, advocating yeah. for that. But what we are right. advocating, I know at least at this podcast, is the the idea, the reality of the priesthood of all believers, because that was such, you know, while that was such a cornerstone of the Reformation doctrinally, it, nev- it never happened. Um, you know, it, it got replaced. The, the Pope in Rome for the Protestant was just replaced with a Pope in every church. And, um, you know, there was, there was always a man at the top that dictated the will of God to the people each week. And he, right. you know, we paid him just like we would, just like the, 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 the Jews in, um, uh, before the time of Christ, just as they would supply the priest, uh, with his livelihood in order to go into the presence right. of God on behalf of the people. We've done the same right. thing. It's just on such a more massive scale. And yet we have this doctrine at the heart of the reformation that is all about the priesthood of all believers. And Tony, I think we're at a place in time where we're actually beginning, I, I mean, I think there's been um, pockets that have broken out throughout history, but I think we're in this time where there's a transition that's happening on a large scale where all of these different uh, believers are emerging out of hierarchical structures to really be in communion in um, non-rivalrous ways where we really share life. We don't, we don't simply go and point all of our chairs towards one person and suck all the life out of him or her, but we actually right. share life in these, in these circles. And for us at beyond the box, the, the fact that the fact that you even call this section virtual church is so biographical for us because that's really what beyond the box is in many ways. Right. It is virtual church. We are yep. fellowshipping with people in Australia and New Zealand and England and, you know, you name it, all over the world who we never would see otherwise in a very non-hierarchical way where everyone's voice can be heard and we can share life and discuss theology and community without anyone being the expert. And right. that is so life-giving. And I think you've just given it such great expression in this book. Well, you know what, uh, Rayborn? I think that's that that is a that is a, a shift in uh, it's an ethical shift. It, it's um, a watershed uh, event in 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 our Christian history in over two thousand years. And the reason for that um, is a whole other uh, conversation. And it's not dealt with a lot in the book. Is really the collapse, I think, of of traditional atonement doctrine, atonement, mm. because the, the traditional atonement doctrine is that an exchange is made, some kind of exchange is made, either, you know, in the Catholic setup or in, in, in Protestantism is, is the same thing, that Christ was sub- a substitute for us, and that, um, that therefore set, uh, enabled us to um, be free from, from the wrath of God. Um, so there's, a, there's an exchange of, of suffering or, uh, or punishment, something like that, uh, so long as you've got that, 
then then you really have a that is that is a that is a, a recipe for hierarchy because mm. you're going to have someone who's going to mediate that exchange. You're going to have someone who represents that. You because I as a, I as a believer, I want to be on the right side of that exchange. I, I don't want to suffer the wrath of God. I don't mm. want to go to hell. Mm. So I, I need someone to assure me because they've had the education because we you know we ordain them and they, and they and they just give me that that. They, they, they give me the, um, the the stamp of approval that I'm on the right side of the exchange. But if you if you have an atonement that is to do with transformation, that is to do with with a, a new kind of humanity, then we learn that from everybody learns it from everybody else. Mm. You can I mean, you may have people who are certainly um, more have grown more in it, but sort of those people who, if they've grown in nonviolence and in compassion, they're not going to set themselves up as power figures. They're going to be they're going to be humble and and uh, servants, and uh, so that that changes the whole makes the nature of the church horizontal, mm. not uh, not hierarchical. So I think that there's a big shift going on for those reasons as well. I think what you're saying there, the, when you talked about horizontal, it's really exactly what we've been saying. It's taking theology to an anthropological level instead of a metaphysical level. Um, because right. when we've got that old, un, that old Greek understanding, that metaphysical understanding of Christianity, there has to be a person standing between us and God. There's just, there's got to be someone suspended right. between heaven and earth, but that's exactly right. But with what you're saying, it's just, it just makes so much sense that Jesus, that Jesus has radically reformed what it means to be human. And therefore, all of this has to happen on the horizontal level. So how can one person rise above another and still call themselves a Christian? Absolutely. Wow. Oh, powerful. I think that's it. That, that's it in a nutshell, Mabel. I think that's it. Wow. Wow. Well, one of the things you talk about in this section with the virtual church is the inclusive boundaries. Um, the idea that, that, you know, we've we've had Richard Beck on the program a couple of times and have talked at length about his book Unclean, and uh-huh. he does such a good job of talking about the the whole purity metaphor and the the idea of um, you know, pure and unpure and all these kinds of things. How do you see inclusion um, as just a real? You you know, there there seems to be this real tension um, between maintaining your identity as as a fellowship of believers and simultaneously uh radical inclusion which inc- which includes the other that's like you and you actually hit on it in the book you said because there's a tension between universal accessibility and radical commitment there will always be a painful shifting along this fault line how right. how do you see the balance working between um not excluding others and yet simultaneously maintaining a distinct identity as Christians? Uh, I think, I think it, 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 it's, um, it can only be worked out in, in practice because um, you, you have, there has to be a kind of um, a, a sensitivity in the particular. And there's, by its very nature, there's a, the, as the, the described it, there's this tension there between, you know, someone comes to the meeting, um, they may be crazy. <laughs> 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 they may actually, you know, be seriously disturbed. Now, what are you going to do? Um, 
Um, now, of course, if there's a threat of uh, danger, I mean, then 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 you have to you have to make some kind of decision there. But but generally speaking, um, there has to be a welcome. I mean, because you're not teaching. I mean, what we've been doing this past hour and a half is important because we're communicating uh, a science system. We're communicating a message, and and um, and hopefully that's being transformative. But at the same time, um, the the test, the delivered test of, of that message is, is is your radical acceptance of the other. So. Um, you know, you, you hope and you pray that your meetings are not completely disrupted or your communities are not disrupted, but the, the accent really falls on the welcome. Um, mm. And where you, where you find that practice, I mean, if you ever come, I'm sure you have, and you've come across it, where, or where you have been welcomed, um, and, and how powerful that is. You know, if you've, you've felt excluded, not because maybe, you know, because you're not, you're not crazy, but you don't fit in somehow, or you're not part of the part of that, that, that the system that you're in. And then some, you go somewhere and, and people welcome you for who you are mm-hmm. um, without, um, without preconceptions. It, it, it is a powerfully transforming effect on you. So I'm saying, I think that the... And, and it is... It is um, you feel... In, in a moment like that, you feel the call to love. You feel the call to be there for the other. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are communities that... Um, that serve the poor, that serve the homeless, and and uh, and, and people who are, are seriously distressed, and uh, and but they they too they need to be part of a of a welcoming. They have to be you know can, you can easily burn out doing that kind of thing. So it's really um, creating communities of welcome, of um, radical hospitality as as, it, as it's called, um, and being open, but at the same time. As, I, as you go forward, you do see people growing. I mean, I, I, I just think about my own experience here with our group, with us hope, is that there's no doubt about it. People have grown. They're, they're, they're more deeply invested in everything we've been talking about. Their, own, their responses have changed. The sense of fellowship, it doesn't make everybody perfect by any means, and, you know, things can always go wrong. But um, there's a sense of, of, of the love of Christ, and and of how that is that is so transforming for everybody and and the community does grow so i think um you rely on the holy spirit basically to make the balance but the accent is all i mean when it comes to it um the welcome is 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 the um, the primary criterion mm, mm. tony so good tony thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us, for sharing your book with us. Um, What an awesome, awesome message you're bringing. This, folks, truly is good news. The fact that Jesus and his compassion and his love has been sewn into the very fabric of humanity and the fabric of the universe is just astounding to me. Awesome stuff. Um, I really hope you guys will pick up the book, and I really hope you'll connect with us either on Facebook, on the website. Um, we just love having these conversations with you, and we love not just doing the podcast, but really interacting with each of you 
and letting you interact with each other and just really making this a community, a virtual church, as Tony talked about in the podcast. So if you want to hook up with us, you can go to our website, <clears throat> excuse me, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You can see all of our past episodes on the website. You can listen to those on the website or you can download them through iTunes or however you listen. Um, you can leave your comments there. You can leave your idea submissions. Uh, anything you want to leave there, we would we would love to interact with you. Now, while you're at the podcast website, you can also see the Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen. You can click that widget and call our number to leave a message for us that we can either play on the air or just something that you want to ask that maybe either you don't have the time to type out or maybe you just want to get it out while you're while you're driving down the road. You want to pull off the side of the road and and dictate that on the phone, feel free to do that. You can click that widget or you can call the number directly. It's 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. The best place that we have our conversations probably is on our Facebook page. Facebook has just become this great, great uh, medium for us to be able to, to really foster a sense of community and to really put questions there, ideas that each of us are thinking through in the community, um, and just really be able to dialogue, which is just awesome. I never want this podcast to turn into a monologue. It really is about the round table. It really is about community. It really is about this thing that Tony's calling virtual church. So go to facebook.com slash btb, or excuse me, facebook.com slash beyond the box and you can hook up with our Facebook community there. Feel free to post anything you want to or to comment on any uh, old posts that you see. Feel free to start your own post. Anything you want to do there, make yourself at home. Um, If you want to sign up for our Twitter feed, it's twitter.com slash btbpodcast. And I really want to encourage you to go check out the book, Virtually Christian. If you get a chance, uh, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you look at books on the internet and pull up this book and and order it, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's one of these reads that I tell you, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you've probably seen all sorts of quotes from this book on Facebook. Tony's writing style is just so... he's, He's just such a gifted writer, and there's something about this book that it's not a fast read. It is not a fast read, but it's a read that you'll ponder and you'll sit there and really sift through what he's saying and think about what he's saying. And I know after I read it the first time, I went back um, to compile some notes for this podcast. And as I went through all of the things I highlighted, I tell you, it was just amazing to me um, just how some of the points that I had already read over just really hit home that second time through and how uh, there were just so many things in there that I went, oh my goodness, this is revolutionary. This is something that while Tony is picking up and riffing on um, the work of René Girard and other theologians and anthropologists, there's I, I believe he's saying something a little bit different here that I've not quite heard uh, anywhere else. I think you'll really enjoy it if you get a chance to get the book. Anyway, thank you all so much for joining us, or as we say here in the South, thank you all so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and hope to see you on Facebook or on the podcast website. And you guys have an awesome rest of your week.